You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, Creekside. Oh, wow, you are so ready, energetic. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you're first time with us, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Really appreciate you being here. Why don't we pray as we continue our series in the Psalms this morning. So Father, as we begin, would you fill us with your spirit, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Would we have a deeper grasp of his great power over sin and his great pity toward us? And Jesus, we praise you that that even now you serve us in heaven. You are kinder to us than we would dare to believe. And I pray that that would prompt us, draw us to come to you in our hour of need. And we ask it for your sake. Amen. So I was reading an article this week. Uh, Earlier this year, the North Korean government started a new mandate and said that everyone between the ages of 14 and 35 must refer to Kim Jong-un, their leader, as, quote, respected father. Now, the American part of us just recoils against that, doesn't it? Because we don't like being forced to do things. I mean, imagine if I tried to pull that at Creekside. Like, hey, 14 to 35, you know what to call me. (laughs) Respected father. You probably wouldn't call me that. You'd probably call me something else. Uh, But but the truth is, people who live under dictatorships don't like it either. They're not happy about it, but I'm guessing they'll go along with it, at least publicly, because in a totalitarian state, if you do anything to defy the leader, you're taking your life into your hands. And and this isn't new. People throughout history who are in power have done this. They, They create cults of personality. That's what they do. And so you are required not simply to do what they say, you're required to honor them, you're required to love them, you're required to enjoy them and adore them. So everyone has to be happy in the presence of the king. Everyone must refer to the king by their proper titles and give them proper deference. And so as Christians, we worship a king. We say Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we believe that a day will come when Jesus will compel submission. A day is coming when every knee will bow. And and the absolute authority and power of Jesus should drive us to obey him because that's who he is. The question I want to ask this morning is what draws us to obey him? What would win us? to follow him. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. That's what I want to talk about today. So we're doing this brief series on the Psalms in the lead up to Christmas, and we've called it Songs of the Coming King, and we're looking at four messianic psalms. So these are ancient Jewish songs that foretell of Israel's promised king, the Messiah. And so we're looking at each of these and seeing how they're fulfilled in Jesus, And if you've been with us, I hope you're starting to see the portrait get filled in. We looked at Psalm 2, which talks about the announcement of the king, and we see that fulfilled both in Jesus' birth and at his baptism. 
Then we looked at Psalm 22, which says that this coming king will be crushed. He will suffer even though he has done nothing wrong. And we see that fulfilled at Jesus' crucifixion. Then last week, we looked at Psalm 16, and we saw that the suffering king is confident that he will be vindicated. That's the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, today, we look at Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah's enthronement, when he's actually installed as king. And that's fulfilled after Jesus' resurrection at his ascension, when he ascends to sit at his father's right hand. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus' birth, right? A lot of time. And, and we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus' death. And we spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection. What Christians don't spend as much time talking about is the ascension. Why does it matter that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised not just from death, but into heaven to sit at God's right hand where he presently sits? Why is that a big deal? Why is that such good news for us. If you grasp what happened when Jesus was installed as king, it changes, I think, your present tense view of Jesus, what he's doing now, and it will win your heart to him. What do I mean? Well, let's look at Psalm 110. I just want to read it through quick. It's not a long psalm. It says this, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now, at face value, this sounds a lot like Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2? Conquering king. God enthrones the king at his right hand. It's this position of power and authority and honor. And now God will make the enemies of the king his footstool. In other words, the king is going to sit on a throne and where are his enemies going to be? Under his feet. His foot's on their neck. That's the picture. And now the king is destroying his enemies. He's pursuing them. He only stops to take a drink of water, the text says. He fills the land with corpses. He hunts down the rebellion. He crushes it completely. And the king is unstoppable. Why? Because God and the king work like this, hand in glove. Do you see that? It's interesting. In verse one, God says to this king, sit at my right hand. But then all of a sudden in verse five, it appears that God is at the king's right hand. So the king is raised to the right hand, this position of honor and authority. And then yet God is working right with the king, protecting him, working through him to ensure that this victory happens. That's the picture. And let's be honest, it sounds like a redo of Psalm two. Both Psalms are just about a king who conquers enemies. And so here's the question, what's unique about this? What's unique about this king? Two things to note today, and this gets to the heart of what wins our hearts to Jesus. Two startling features of this psalm. First, I want to look at who follows the king. And then second, what wins their allegiance. Who follows him? 
what wins their allegiance. First, look at verse three. Who follows the king? What you should see is that these people offer themselves what? Freely to the king. Now, that should amaze you because this king has universal power. That's clear, isn't it? This is the kind of king who can say, obey me or else. Absolute imperial authority. And yet when the king's followers are described, what does it say? This, this king doesn't need to conscript an army. This king doesn't need to hold a draft to make people wage war on his behalf. It says that the people aren't driven, they're drawn. They're not just compelled externally. They feel this inward compulsion to serve the king. They gladly offer their whole lives. They're transformed people, holy garments. That's the, the radiance of their new lives they have. And they're filled with youthful energy. That's what the dew of the morning symbolizes. So you have people who are changed, who freely offer themselves to the king and say, I will give the best of my strength to you. Charles Spurgeon said, this is a picture of great numbers of converts to Jesus who appear like the dew just out of nowhere. And they, quote, hasten with cheerfulness to own his sway, which is just a 19th century way of saying they happily submitted to the king. So, so the question before us is this, if that's a picture of Jesus, if that's a picture of his followers, and, and spoiler alert, it is, what would draw us to King Jesus like this? To gladly and freely give ourselves to someone who, who could honestly force our allegiance. What is it? How does he win us? That's where I want to spend the bulk of our time today. Someone too is amazing. I'm, gosh, I, I want more time, but I don't have it. All right. It's amazing because, you know, there are certain passages in the Bible that are kind of like train stations. Where, where things will come into the station and then get shot out to a new destination. That's Psalm 1, where all of these themes that come before are taken up and shot out to the rest of the Bible. And if you get Psalm 110, you see really how the whole biblical story is interconnected. The New Testament writers thought this was a big deal. In fact, Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to more than any other Old Testament passage. New Testament writers thought this was extremely significant. Why is this psalm so significant? Three reasons. First is this, this is a very clear picture of the Messiah. You know, sometimes we've seen in this series, uh, the Old Testament will hint at the Messiah. Sometimes it says, Messiah, this is the guy. This is one of those passages. No, notice the very beginning of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David. That, that wasn't added by the publisher of your Bible. That's in the Bible. And that's significant. David wrote this. Why is that so significant? It might seem like an incidental detail. It's not. Why? Because of how David opens. What does he say? The Lord, that's Yahweh, God, says to who? My Lord. So David is talking about two lords. There's Yahweh, the heavenly Lord, and then there's David's Lord, an earthly Lord, and, and, and that's kind of the record scratch moment in the text if you're an Old Testament Jew. Because the earthly Lord is Yahweh, we all believe that, but the, the heavenly Lord, the earthly Lord is who? The king. And the king is who? David, the guy writing it. And yet David talks about who? My Lord. So David says he has two lords. In other words, he submits to two kings. 
And as we've seen, they work in close concert. So, so who is this second Lord? Who is my Lord? Who is David's Lord? Well, it can only be the Messiah, the future king of Israel, David's son, a descendant of David, who will also be David's Lord. And if you're unconvinced, I'll just pull the Jesus card on you because this is exactly how Jesus interprets Psalm 110. You might remember in Luke 20, Jesus is in an argument with the Pharisees about the Bible, and Jesus quotes Psalm 10, 110, and here's what he says. How is it that they say Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? So here's the argument. The Jews of Jesus' day knew that the Messiah would come from David's line, that he would be David's son. But apparently some Jews thought that the Messiah would be kind of inferior to David. Because in the ancient world, older was better. And, and older people were superior to younger people. And, and so Jesus challenges this idea. In effect, he's asking, why do you think the Messiah is merely David's son? Clearly, he's also David's Lord. So, so Jesus takes Psalm 110 to kind of blow up the Pharisees' paradigm of this limited Messiah. He says the Messiah is a way bigger deal than you realize. In fact, this descendant of David is David's Lord. And, and the Pharisees don't answer him, so I, I, I'm guessing Jesus just kind of dropped the mic at this moment because uh, they didn't know what to do with this. So sometimes the Old Testament hints at the Messiah. Sometimes it's shouting at us, this is the Messiah. It's shouting at us. This is clear. It's a clear picture of the Messiah. Second, it's a comprehensive view of the Messiah. What do I mean? Well, if you notice, if you look closely, you see that what the Messiah does here is mentioned in stages. Did you see that? Verse one, God says, sit at my right hand. And then what's the next word? Until. Until, which means there's a timeline between the time the Messiah sits at the right hand and the time that he dominates his enemies. You see that? Now, here's what's interesting. The New Testament writers quote verse 1. They never quote verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, or verse 7 in the New Testament. All of the verses that talk about the military conquest of the Messiah, they never quote. You know why? because it hasn't happened yet. See, this passage helps us to put together how history will develop. This passage implies that there will be a time when the Messiah is enthroned. And then there's a time until the Messiah establishes his reign completely. And this helped the New Testament writers put together what was happening in their own lives that Jesus had died and rose and he was ascending. And is he reigning now? Yes, he's reigning. But is there still evil in the world? Yes, why? Because of one little word, until. Until this happens. So, so this helps us to put together history. That's why the New Testament writers refer to it so often. So it's a clear picture. It's a comprehensive picture. But here's the third point, and this really gets to the point of this morning. It's a compassionate picture. Now you might say, hold up, Jeff, compassion? This looks like a bloodbath, right? I mean, the Messiah is cleaning house. Where is the compassion here? Well, look closer. The Messiah is enthroned. That's verse one. 
What is the Messiah doing right now? If he's not cleaning up his enemies, what is Jesus doing? What has he been doing on his throne for the last 2,000 years? Verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God says to the Messiah, you are king, you rule. And then in verse four, he says, you're also a priest. Now, that's very good news for us. Here's why. Here's what a priest does. A priest cares for the people on behalf of God. Kings rule the people on behalf of God. Priests minister on behalf of the people before God. The priest's whole job in the Old Testament was to make atonement for sins, to to bring the prayers of the people before God, to minister to the people's needs. And so here's what Psalm 110 is saying. The person with the most authority will be the person with the most compassion for his people. We don't get priests, do we? Because that's kind of a foreign concept to a lot of us. Think, Think about an advocate. We get what an advocate is, right? You need an advocate sometime. Like if you're in the hospital, you need an advocate, don't you? And, and, and you don't want me as your advocate. You don't. If I come in and be like, man, looks like you're hurt. <laughs> Someone better get a nurse, right? I'd, I'll pray for you. I'll get you some water. What's your pain scale? Eight? That sounds bad. Sounds really bad. Sorry. You don't want me. You want my wife because my wife's a nurse. And it's amazing because my wife knows the system. The minute she walks into your room, doctors will appear. And specialists will appear. And drugs will appear that she didn't even know you needed. You'll be happy and you'll you'll be getting attended to. And she is an amazing advocate, not just because she's compassionate, because she's competent to know how the system works. You need an advocate. At some point or another, you need an advocate. And the Bible says you need an advocate before God. That you cannot on your own stand before him, but the good news is the one with all authority is the one who will reign to represent you before God. In fact, that's what he's currently doing with his power. Now, here's where it gets complicated. Because under the law of Moses, there's a problem. A king can't be a priest, and a priest can't be a king. So so how in the world can the Messiah be both? Well, that's where Melchizedek comes in. Who is Melchizedek? That's a good question. Uh, He's not a DJ. I always thought Mixed Master Melchizedek. That was a... (laughs) my DJ name. Um, He's a very mysterious figure. And we're about to dive deep. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek can be hard to understand. So if this next section is hard to understand, don't blame me, okay? Because the Bible says this part of the Bible is challenging. But if you stay with me, you are going to see something that ties the entire biblical narrative together. Melchizedek is a very strange figure He's a very mysterious figure, but he becomes hugely significant in the biblical story. He shows up in Genesis 14, and here's what's significant about Melchizedek. He shows up to Abraham, and he shows up at a very interesting point in Abraham's story. If you look at Genesis 12 through 14, this very interesting thing happens with Abraham, where he actually lives out Israel's history in advance. So, 
Abraham experiences a famine in the land and he flees to Egypt and things don't go well in Egypt for him. In fact, they go really bad. So he has to be delivered and then he goes back to the land and when he gets back into the land, he has to defeat God's enemies and then settle the land. What does that sound like? Israel's entire history, doesn't it? There's a famine, go down to Israel, come back, get delivered out, settle the land. And then at the high point of this narrative, after the land is settled... Abraham appears before this king named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek seems to come out of nowhere. He's not a Jew. And that's very surprising because God's just working through the Jews, just through Abraham's family. Melchizedek is outside the line. But he's called a king. The name means king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And he's also called a priest. So he's a king and a priest outside of the normal line that we expect. You following with me? And he's a king and a priest in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Now, Abraham clearly sees him as a big deal because Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. He honors Melchizedek as someone superior to him. And here's what's so interesting. He comes outside the line of Abraham and yet he worships Abraham's God. In fact, they refer to God the same way in the text. Now, that's all really weird, isn't it? And then, whoop, Melchizedek's gone. But, but you gotta think David is thinking about this, right? David wrote the Psalm and he's like, well, wait a minute. In Israel's history, there's a famine and then they go down to the land and then they come back into the land and they settle the land. And at the high point of Abraham's story and Israel's story, they come back into the land and then they come to Jerusalem where God's gonna install a king, right? You tracking with me? David picked this up that, that there was a priest king of Jerusalem who God seems to want to work through. Now, here's what's interesting. Fast forward in the biblical story, God installs priests, right? Family of Aaron, tribe of Levi. That, that's who are gonna be the priests of God's people. Do they ever do a good job? No. From the very beginning, it doesn't get off to a good start, right? Aaron is the first priest. Whew, things don't go well with Aaron, right? He's like, okay, you're gonna represent me before the people, you're gonna do this thing, right? And then you remember what happens at, the, at, at, uh, at Mount Sinai, right? Where, where dad leaves and goes up on the hill and the kids just freak out, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, we don't like big scary God, we need a God. And Aaron's like, oh, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And so they make a calf, right? And they start worshiping the calf as God and Aaron does that. And then Moses comes down the mountain, he's like, Aaron, what's going on? He's like, oh, people gave me the gold and I threw it and the calf came out and I don't know what's going on either, man. Like, what happened? And, 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 and Aaron, he just, he just blows it massively. He leads the people away from God. He doesn't represent the people before God at all. He fails and his sons fail and the Levites are awful. In fact, when you get to the book of Judges, which is like the worst book in the Bible, and it just seems like people can't get any more wicked. The most wicked people are the Levites. The priests are doing some of the worst stuff. And then you get to the time when God's going to install a king, and he's going to install David, and you have this man, Eli, and his sons, and they're just awful. They're, they're just corrupting the priesthood, and God says, we're done. We're done. This priesthood will not last. In fact, he says, I told you to be a priesthood forever. You have backed out of your promise. I am going to find a new priesthood that will actually be faithful. And look what he says. First Samuel, and I will raise up for myself a what? Faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, this is what's interesting. God says, I'm raising up a new priesthood. And so who is the priest? Who is this person? Well, at first glance, it appears to be David. David appears to be the priest king because he's a man after God's heart. He's a man who loves to worship God. He's faithful before God. And God says, I will establish your house. And you think about David when he becomes king. What does he do? He leads the people in worship. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 6. David leads the people in before the presence of God and he pitches the tent where the Ark of the Covenant will dwell and he dances before the Lord in an ephod, which is what priests wore. And he makes sacrifices and he sure looks like a priest. But guess what? David wasn't a priest. He still wasn't a priest. He was just priestly. And and where does he set up the kingdom? In Jerusalem. Is this sounding familiar yet? So you got a priest king who reigned over Jerusalem and then you've got David knowing God's promise about establishing a priest king in Jerusalem, but David knows he's not the guy. And so what does David look forward to? Someone superior to him who will actually finally be the one who was both king and priest who God had promised forever. And God finally brings these two roles together in who? Jesus. Yes, Jesus. And, and in an essence, this is what the bulk of the letter of Hebrews is about, is showing that all of this was leading up to Jesus. And here's the climax of what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, the main point in what we have been saying is this. Don't you love when the Bible says that? Yeah. Well, what's the point? Okay, here's the main point in what we've been saying, okay? We have such a high priest like Melchizedek, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty, just like Psalm 110 says, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus takes up all of these biblical themes and fulfills it, the only faithful king, the only faithful priest who represents us before God. And David grasps and starts putting this all together. Now, what does that mean for us? It's a lot of theology, Jeff. What does it mean? Here's what it means. That Jesus, who has all authority and power and is exalted over everyone, he sits at God's right hand and who does he leverage all of that authority and power for? Us. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he exalted Christ over all things and gave him as head to who? The church. He's ours which means all the authority in heaven and on earth is being wielded by Christ for our benefit now. And the person you want to help you is someone who's able to help you, who's willing to help you, and who's ready to help you. And if you don't have all three of those, you don't have someone who helps you. Sometimes people are willing but aren't very able. I remember uh, when Addie was younger, she, she got some kind of boo-boo and uh, mom wasn't around. And here's the problem being married to a nurse. Like her competence level is so high that like like my kids just assume I have no idea what to do when there's any kind of medical issue. (laughs) They just think I'm useless. And so Addie was crying and she's just like, I heard, I need need a band-aid. And I'm like, I can help you. And she's like, no, mom has to help me. And I'm like, no, really, I can help you. I'm willing to help you. She's like, no. And I'm like, no, really. And finally, she, in her exasperation, she just blurts out like, Daddy, you're not a nurse. 
You're a pastor. You can't do anything. Um, So I was more than willing to help Addie, but in her mind, I was unable. And this is the problem in life, that people with connections and power and competence are the people we need to help us. But often they're the people least willing to help us. And the people most willing to help us, I don't want your help, right? No thanks. Jesus is able. Jesus is willing. Jesus is ready. He's able to help you. The writer of Hebrews says this, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that Jesus' work for you didn't end at the cross, that he continues to work for you today? That he sits in heaven? Here's the amazing thing about Jesus in contrast to the priests of the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices, did they ever end? No. Just bloodshed all the time, animal after animal after animal, and it never did enough to atone for the sins of the people. It was always more, always more. And so the priests in the temple were constantly what? Standing. Standing all the time, making more sacrifices, working all day long. But then Jesus goes to the cross and dies once for all, and he ascends to heaven. Is he standing? Sitting. You know why? Because the work of atonement is done. It's finished. And yet Jesus, after dying for us and raising for us, he's not just like, well, I'm done. Now it's your turn to be thankful to me. No, what does he do? It says he prays for us. What does that mean? That all the time for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has presented his finished work before the Father and saying, Lord, regard them as you regard me. Jesus, before you prayed to him this morning, he was praying for you. He was presenting his finished sacrifice to you. He was making intercession for you. That's who Jesus is. And it's effective, all authority, all power. It's been done forever. The victory is already his. The victory is already yours. And God doesn't have to be persuaded to love Jesus. In fact, it was God who sent Jesus out of his own love, right? The the Lord has sworn forever, you're a priest. He will not change his mind. That's good news. Whenever God makes an oath, he's gonna keep it. Do you know what God's oath is? Jesus, the work is done. His people are mine forever. And because he lives forever to make intercession, we're secure forever before God the Father. So in God's eyes, you're fine today. You're doing great before Jesus. He is able to help you. You have your father's ear. He welcomes you into his own presence as his own son or daughter because his son is making intercession for you. It's effective. Full access to the one who is able to help you. Better still, Jesus is willing to help you. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says this, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, even though he is in heaven, does not feel disconnected from you. Do you realize that? Because Jesus took on a human body to walk in your skin and he knows what it's like to be you. So when you suffer, when you have need, Jesus says, I get it. I know. 
One of the most astounding things about the gospels is Jesus' natural response in situations. Do you know what Jesus' number one natural response is emotionally? You know what it is? Compassion. Compassion. What he feels most often is compassion. Jesus doesn't have to muster up compassion. It comes naturally to him. That's who God is. In his incarnation, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Here's what you should realize. When you look at Jesus responding to people in need in the gospels, the same Jesus is in heaven now. And because he has a body forever, he is connected to you in a way that you can't imagine. He understands what it's like to suffer. And the image I always use for this, and I'll use it again because it's the best one, is what happens in music, which is called sympathetic resonance. Suppose there were two pianos on this stage up here. If you play the middle C on one piano, do you know what happens to the middle C on the other piano? It vibrates. You know why? It's on the same frequency. See the same thing when you're tuning a guitar. You pluck one string, and if it's tuned to the same on the next string, it, it vibrates. It picks up the frequency. Jesus has a sympathetic resonance with you. He is able to operate on the wavelength of your pain, and so when you suffer, something in Jesus resonates. He knows what it's like to be in pain, and so when you cry out to him, he has pity on you. That's his permanent heart posture towards his people. He is always gentle and lowly towards us. He is able, he is willing, but finally he's ready. Hebrews 2 says, he helps the offspring of Abraham just as Melchizedek helped Abraham, those who are Abraham's children by faith. Do you know who Jesus lives to help now? Us. In fact, his entire heavenly session is geared towards meeting us in our need, helping us, presenting us before the Father, and ensuring we make it safely home. That's what he lives to do with his throne. Now, if you believed that, do you think it would change your prayer life? That, that before you were praying to Jesus this morning, guess who was praying for you? Jesus. Before you were serving him, he was out serving you and he outserves you forever. That's who Jesus is. And, and here's the reality. If the more you think about this, the more willing you are to submit to Jesus and go to him in your hour of need. The, the easiest way to guilt you is to say you should pray more right? You know, you should pray more. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should, I, should, I should care more about the poor and pray more. The easiest way is to guilt Christians, right? Does it work? No. no. It, it doesn't work because the only way to get a vibrant prayer life is to have a new view of the one you're praying to. The only way to treat God as your first resort and not your last resort is to change your view of God. And as long as you view God as disinterested or distant, prayer will feel like an enormous spiritual burden. Because God is somewhere out there and I have to muster up the zeal and, attentive and, and earnestness to get his attention. But the reality of Jesus is God is already attentive to you. God is already welcoming you. God is already eager to help you, which is why the writer of Hebrews, you know what his big application from all this is? If you get Psalm 110, here's what it is. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. 
the throne of grace. Jesus' throne at the right hand of the Father is the throne of grace, of a kind disposition toward you at all times to give you what? Mercy and grace in your time of need. And Jesus has all authority and power and all resources of heaven at his disposal to get you through whatever you're going through right now. And, and, and so the real question is, why wouldn't you pray more? <laughs> why wouldn't you eagerly seek his will? Why wouldn't you do that if that's who's waiting to help you? And so draw near. Draw near. In the morning, draw near and tell him the help you need. He's already attentive to you. You already have his ear because there is a king in heaven whoever lives above to intercede for you. He will never be turned away and you will never be turned away because you are in him. Let's pray. So, so Jesus, your word says that we have not because we've asked not. And Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to you. Um, you are more willing to help us than we are willing to ask. And so Lord, would you prompt us and move us to see that, that even now you are making intercession for us, that you are wielding your great authority on our behalf, and Lord, would it draw us to cry out to you when we wake throughout the day, when we go to bed. And Lord, to find what we need in each moment, because Lord, you are more than willing to give it. Thank you, Jesus. Pray it in your name. Amen.